There is a single thing that we do here at Fort City that I love more than baptisms. Uh, I have watched these interviews probably a thousand times now, and every time I get so excited and my heart starts beating a little bit faster, I absolutely love them. Something about baptism feels electric, and it feels important, and that's why we, we talk about it so much here. And I'm going to ask a question today. Where did baptism first start? Who is the first person who started dunking people in the water in the name of Jesus? But before I answer that question, uh, I have a story I would like to tell. I want to ask a different question. Do you have a story that is so crazy that it sounds like it's not true? A story that you tell people and then you always have to follow it up by saying, No, really, I'm telling the truth. That actually happened, I swear. Your story is either so unbelievable or so bizarre that you have to double down and convince people that you're telling the truth. I have a story like that. Uh, a few years back, uh, we had some baby squirrels born in our backyard, and they started hanging around, and we couldn't get rid of them. They loved us. They would run up to us and, and try to climb on us when we were sitting around the campfire, and uh, they were really cute. Uh, they were really very tiny. And one day I was in the backyard playing with my son, Justice, who was about three years old at the time, and he was not very steady on his feet, and he took a step backwards and accidentally stepped on one of the squirrels. Yeah, he was hurt pretty bad. Uh, things were looking grim for him. Uh, I did not think he would make a swift recovery at all. And so Adrian whisked Justice away into the house, and then she watched through the window into the backyard with me standing there holding a shovel, trying to earn enough courage to do the only humane thing and put this little guy out of his mis misery. I couldn't do it. I am a wuss. I stood there for 15 minutes, and I just I couldn't do it. And so I did the only next thing I knew uh, that I could do is I, I called my mom. Uh, she's a pretty tough lady, and so I figured, you know, uh, if I call her over for help, she'll do the dirty work for me. And she was there in five minutes, and she, she hugged me, and she patted me on the back. She said, everything's going to be okay, Lucas. And she picked up this little squirrel, and then she disappeared off into the night. And I just assumed that she didn't want me to see what was about to happen. You know, she was protecting me. Uh, fast forward a few days, and I go to visit my mom in her house, and I walk in the front door, and guys, this is true, okay? My mom is sitting in a rocking chair, bottle-feeding a squirrel. She is literally nursing this squirrel back to health. And you guys may not know this because uh, you're not squir squirrel parents, um, but there comes a day in every squirrel's life when they have to fly the coop, move out on their own, become their own squirrel self. And so after a couple of months of this squirrel being rehabbed by my mom, she found a squirrel sanctuary in Edmonton and drove this squirrel to Edmonton and released him into this specially protected squirrel sanctuary. You guys, this is a true story. I, there were witnesses. There were people there who saw this happen. It is a true story. I am not lying. 
And right now, we're in the middle of our summer message series where uh, we're talking about Jesus' stories. And each week, we are looking at a different account from his life. We're talking about a different story. And the thing that we want you guys to know, to walk away from here knowing, is that these Jesus stories are not fairy tales. They are not fiction. They are not religious traditions or myths. These are historical accounts written down by real people who witnessed unbelievable and bizarre, but yet very real events. And people like Matthew, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who followed Jesus around for his entire ministry, Matthew was close enough to see the expressions on the faces of the people that Jesus healed. There was people like John, who was so close to Jesus that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus asked John to take care of his mother after he was gone. There's people like Peter who experienced the fear of drowning in open water and he was close enough to Jesus for Jesus to reach out his hand and rescue him. These Jesus stories are not just stories. They are real life experiences of men and women whose lives at some point intersected with the life of Jesus. They are the accounts of people who found themselves in unbelievable and often bizarre situations. And when they would retell their stories to their friends, they'd have to say, no, that actually happened. I swear. Today's Jesus story doesn't actually start with Jesus. It starts with a guy named John. John the Baptist. He was sort of an eccentric fellow. Uh, his story had a weird start as well. Before his parents were even pregnant, an angel appeared to his father, Zechariah, and told him uh, that he would be having a son. Um, Zechariah expressed a little bit of doubt because he, he and his wife were really old. Uh, they didn't think there was much chance of them having a son. And because of that, uh, the angel made Zechariah mute until John was born. Now, that is a curse or a blessing, depending on who you ask. Maybe his wife appreciated all those months of him being mute. Uh, but it's totally a weird origin story to have. Um, John was actually the cousin of Jesus, and he was only a few months older than him. They lived very different lives, but their stories intersected in a very important and dramatic scene in the New Testament. And Jesus loved John. After John's death, uh, Jesus was quoted as saying, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was a huge John fan. And Matthew tells us about John the Baptist. Matthew is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, the guy who followed Jesus everywhere, who wrote the first gospel in the first account of Jesus' life in the New Testament. It's right at the start. That Matthew tells us. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes some Old Testament prophecies. He says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's role was to prepare people to meet Jesus. He was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare a spiritual road, road for the arrival of Jesus. He was there to call people 
back to the truth. John was the hype guy that gets sent out before the, uh, the crowd, before the headliner takes the stage. He was there to get people ready for Jesus, and that is exactly what he did. Uh, John was in many ways the opposite to most religious leaders of his day. Uh, most of them were part of the n- nobility. Uh, they lived in the holy city of Jerusalem. They had degrees. They wore nice clothes. They were wealthy. And John was none of that. John lived in the wilderness, uh, and we're told that his clothes were made from camel hair. I don't know if you've ever sat on a camel before, but they're not particularly soft. Nobody is buying uh, 1,000-thread-count Egyptian camel cotton sheets. It's not a thing. And we know that John, uh, in addition to wearing camel skin, uh, lived on a diet of locusts and honey. Um, now, millennials are like really into eating locusts and bug these days. It's kind of becoming popular. But back then, it was kind of frowned upon. Uh, it wasn't in the typical Jewish diet. And instead of, like his religious counterparts in Jerusalem, instead of preaching and teaching in synagogues or the temple, John stood on the muddy banks of the Jordan River, 40 miles from Jerusalem. And he preached a very simple message. You're bad. Stop it. You're doing bad things. Don't do that no more. And people ate it up. Thousands and thousands of people. Uh, the writers kind of exaggerate a bit. and They said all of Judea came to see John on the side of the Jordan River. People wanted to hear him preach. And they traveled 40 miles from the Jerusalem to do it. That is serious dedication. I am preaching this morning, and even I thought about skipping church today. So those people were very dedicated, and they came all over to hear John preach a one-point message. Repent. Repent. It's a sort of an old-fashioned word. Uh, it's definitely not a word that we're using uh, in the much in the 21st century. And I'm, billing, I'm willing to bet, like, you know, when your kids hit each other or if they lie to you, you don't tell them that they need to repent. You use different words to describe it. Repent is kind of an old word that's fallen out of popular use. But repent was John's favorite word. Over and over again, He told the people who came to listen to him preach to repent from their sins and turn away from their wickedness. And see, in that time, a problem had developed where uh, people in that day, sin had lost its sting. They didn't care about sin anymore. People had become desensitized to it. They had developed ways of of hiding their sin or making them feel okay about their sin. Uh, And they could just continue sinning and offering sacrifices, and that would make everything Okay, there was no desire to actually repent, to actually change their lifestyle. But John's message was simple. That sort of thinking wasn't going to be good enough anymore. It was time to repent. It was time to turn away from our sinful desires, to stop sinning, and to pursue a life of righteousness. Many of them thought that because they were sons of Abraham, which is to say that they were Jews, that that was good enough. But John was raising the bar. He said, repent, turn, and walk away from your sin. And that is a message that is still relevant today. Part of deciding to follow God is deciding to repent of your sin. 
Not to feel guilt and shame about it, but to begin to actually turn and walk away from the destructive consequences of not living the way God wants us to. Sin has consequences. Nobody argues that sin doesn't have consequences. Sin hurts us, and it hurts the people around us. It breaks up families. It isolates us from each other. It robs us of the better life that God has for each one of us. Repent is a strong word, and it's too often been used as a sword. Um, when I was growing up, I remember preachers saying that repentance was a 180-degree turn from your sinful life, that it was one and done, that it was all or nothing, that if you were really going to repent, you had to walk in the opposite direction of all of your mistakes and brokenness. That just wasn't my reality. See, I would sin, and i repent. I'd ask God to forgive me, and then I'd sin again. And then I'd ask God to forgive me, and repent, and then I'd sin again. I felt so much shame, so, so much guilt. I just couldn't repent. I just couldn't do it properly. I couldn't make it stick. And when people become Christians, uh, it seemed in the past that sometimes we had this unrealistic expectation that they would repent from their sin completely and permanently, a 180-degree turn away. And that sort of pressure is not healthy, and I don't think... It's very realistic. I'm going to tell you another unbelievable story about myself. I am an accomplished triathlete. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know looking at me now, uh, you, it, you wouldn't have guessed it, uh, but this was a few years back, and so that's me and Matt Manili and Mike Sotsky, who's actually here today, sitting in the front row, the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Sotsky is here today. Um, that was, ask me to get into that suit today. It can't happen. Uh, but I am an accomplished triathlete. And, uh, and I've got pictures to prove it. And I was always grateful in the triathlons that they put the swim at the start. Because if it was after the run and the bike, there was a much higher chance that I would drown. And so they, they, they were looking out for us. But the, the swim in these things are crazy. Uh, you, 400 people line up on the bank of a lake and they put a orange buoy 750 meters into the lake and then a gun goes and 400 people all at the same time rush into the water and start racing towards the buoy and uh, it, it's insane um, you're swimming over top of people you're getting kicked in the face I'm pretty sure I got bit one time um, and the thing about swimming in the lake is that there's no lines on the bottom of the lake like there is in a pool. And so you, you need to, to swim straight, but there's no guide. And so every once in a while, you've got to look up and then go back to swimming and look up. And the thing about me, uh, I was not very good at swimming in a straight line. Uh, so I'd be swimming, and then I'd look up, and I'd be like all by myself over to the left, and the buoy was over there. And so I'd correct course, swim another 50 meters, look up, I'm way off to the left again. And I think I did that so many times that the 1.5-kilometer swim ended up being 2 kilometers. Um, but here's the thing. This is my same experience with repentance having to make constant daily adjustments, going off course and screwing up and failing and then getting back on course again, then screwing up again and having to look up and see where I am and where I'm going and trying again. And oftentimes we place these unrealistic 
expectations on each other. Oftentimes we place these unrealistic expectations of repentance on ourselves. And there isn't a single person in all of recorded biblical history that was able to master this, to be perfect, except for one. But this makes what they wrote down so much more believable. The people who wrote the Bible, they had a chance to make themselves look better than they were. They had a chance to control their own stories and make themselves appear to be amazing and awesome and heroes of faith. They had control of the narrative. But instead, they wrote the truth. And they didn't abuse that. They wrote down the truth. And Matthew told us that he abandoned Jesus at the cross. John tells us that he lost faith after Jesus died. Paul loved talking about all of his weaknesses. And Peter did a lot of dumb stuff. None of them lived perfect lives. Except for one. So let's go back to the the Jordan River. John stood there preaching a message of repentance and baptizing people by dunking them in the water. But he was clear about one thing. His repentance was not good enough. His baptism had a shortcoming. That it was rooted in our own ability. That it was rooted in our ability to change ourselves, to become better people through hard work work and he stood in the water and he called out to the thousands and thousands of people lined up to get baptized and he told them I baptize you with water for repentance he's saying this is just water this is just us this is just our feeble efforts to try to live up to an impossible standard and he says but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he's saying someone who is coming who is going to take your feeble attempts at repentance and turn them into something valuable. Someone is coming coming who is going to take the sin of the world on his shoulders. Someone is coming whose greatness and compassion and righteousness is better than anything that you could ever achieve on your own. And then John says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying his baptism won't be about your ability to work hard and live a good life. His baptism will be about his power to change you. His ability to lead you. His righteousness in place of your own. And as John is preaching this, someone appears in the crowd, a new person. No one knew who he was. He was just another man, just another person who had come to listen to John preach. But John knew him. And it was Jesus. And John pointed up to Jesus on the bank of the river and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who will lift up and carry off all of our sin. The one who will give his life so we all may live. The one who will make our repentance actually mean something. And this moment had been in the making for John his whole life. He was sent to prepare people for this day when Jesus would step out of the shadows and emerge from obscurity and begin his ministry of redeeming the whole world. And John came to baptize with water, but Jesus had arrived to baptize with the Spirit of God. And so Jesus stepped into the water and he waded over to John And he asked John to baptize him. And John's mind was probably racing in this moment. He knew something nobody else there knew that day, that Jesus was important. And he tells Jesus, I'm not even worthy to carry your sandals. You should be baptizing 
me. But Jesus was doing Jesus' things, and he insisted that John baptize him. And so John put his hand on his back. He lowered him into the water. And as Jesus emerged out of the water, the atmosphere changed. And the sky opened up, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. For Jesus, this was his first step on his path towards the cross. This day would mark the beginning of his ministry. And over the course of the next three years, the blind would see and the lame would walk and the dead would live. He'd be betrayed by his uh, friend. He would be abandoned by those closest to him. He'd walk up a hill of Calvary. He'd breathe his last breath nailed to a tree. He would give his whole life for the whole world and he would be raised to life as proof of who he was and what his message was. That anyone who puts their trust in him will know life. Sometime after his resurrection, Jesus stood on a hill, surrounded by the ones who had once abandoned him at the cross. Knowing these would be his last words to them, he gave them one last instruction. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, his first day started with his own baptism. And his last day of ministry ended with him telling his followers to go and baptize the world. When Jesus asks us to repent, he's asking us to turn our back on sin, but he's actually asking us to turn towards him. It's not just about stopping something that harms us. It's about starting something that benefits us. A relationship with our creator who wants us to experience life to the full. Experience a life that isn't just about avoiding the bad stuff. But a life that's overflowing with the good stuff. In his own words, Jesus put it this way. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Years ago, I bought uh, my first brand new vehicle. It was a 2008 GMC Acadia. I loved that thing. I was so proud of that car. Almost every week, I would pull it into the fire hall and detail it inside and out. It was immaculate. And then kids happened. Justice dropped a bottle of milk under his chair, and it disappeared there for a few weeks until it burst. And it spilled rotten milk under the chair where you just cannot get at it to clean. And I cannot overstate just how bad that car smelled. And we could not get the smell to go away. Uh, the people I used to carpool with started taking the bus. It was that bad. I drove that thing for eight more years. And I'm telling you, that smell didn't, it didn't, it didn't ever go away. Uh, it, was a, it was there forever. And... Uh, and there's nothing I could do to fix it. It was in a spot. I, I, I'm not a mechanic. I don't have to take the chair out. It just stunk forever. Until one day, I traded that vehicle in and bought a minivan. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Because our sin is a lot like that. It stinks everything up. And we can shampoo the carpets and open the windows and fill our lives up with all the pine tree air fresheners that we can find, but the stink of sin just doesn't go away. That is, until we're willing to trade it in for something new. Something better than a minivan. 
Something better than what we thought we wanted. Something better than what we could have ever earned or made on our own. When we choose to repent, to turn away from our brokenness and sin, when we choose to turn uh, uh, towards and face Jesus, to reorientate our life in His direction, He takes hold of our, our old, stinky, dirty, sin stained lives and He gets rid of them and in its place He gives us something new. A new life with Him. Fear for love. Anxiety for hope. Brokenness for wholeness. Emptiness for overflowing. And death for life. It's this beautiful exchange. And that's for us what baptism represents. It isn't just an image of our sins being washed away. Baptism paints the bigger picture of us letting go of our broken, beaten up old selves putting that life into the grave and rising up out of the water with the life of Jesus flowing through our veins. Paul put it this way. He said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And there are people in this room today who have made the decision to get baptized here in our service next week. Uh, They're going to step into the water and they're going to tell the world that they have decided. They have decided to follow Jesus, to turn away from their sin and towards life. And one of the parts of my job that I love the most is I get to sit sit down with every baptism candidate and I I get to interview them for the videos and uh, I get to hear their stories. I get to hear about their pain and their mistakes and I get to hear about how God has changed their life. And it's incredibly rewarding to get to hear their stories firsthand. But one of the things that seems to come up in all of those interviews is the person's struggle trying to decide whether they're good enough to get baptized whether they've met the criteria to get baptized or not. But baptism is not about being good enough. It's about how good just isn't enough. If you have decided to give your life to Jesus, then you're ready for baptism. If you are not perfect, but you want to spend your life becoming who God created you to be, then you are ready for baptism. And if you want to turn away from sin that so easily entangles and turn towards the fullness of life that only Jesus offers, then you are ready for baptism. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you this morning for the chance that we have to come to this place and to worship you and to look at the, the, your word. And Father God, I pray that you would begin a work in each one of us, teaching us what it means to truly repent. And not just to try to stop sinning, not just to try to run away from those things, but to repent and turn towards you and the life that you have to offer us and the fullness of what it means to live our lives with you at the center. Jesus, teach us what it means to follow you and to live in that fullness. Pray this in your holiest of names.